Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Sunday, March 21st here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well, staying safe and healthy as we are approaching uh, springtime here, 2021, uh, COVID pandemic. Uh, hope everyone is doing well, enjoying the uh, first weekend of the men's and women's NCAA basketball tournaments. It's always one of the uh, best weekends of the sports calendar year. Uh, a lot of really, really fun games, a lot of really fun upsets. Oral Roberts into the Sweet 16. Ohio with a big win over Virginia. You know, Syracuse, Sweet 16. Loyola, Chicago into the Sweet 16. So, so many fun teams. On the women's side, their tournament just kicked off this afternoon. Really, really fun to watch Michigan play. Uh, NC State, Baylor, whole bunch of really good teams. So keep an eye out for, for, for both of those. Uh, for before we get going here, obviously last week there's the horrific, awful uh, shooting event in Atlanta at the spa at the spa parlors. Uh, just an incredibly terrible, really really sad uh, event. Really really tragic, and uh, you know we all need to do more, more and more to to make sure that we are uh, preventing and, and and helping to eliminate anti-Asian discrimination and rhetoric here in a here in America because as this last year and, and this event last week really shows that it's on the rise and, uh, and that we need to do more to to help uh, prevent it because uh, it was really an awful thing uh, on today's podcast is a in, is a conversation I had last week with coach Carla Flaherty she is the head women's basketball coach at Roanoke in Salem, Virginia. Uh, she's had a really interesting personal playing career, coaching career, uh, at a couple cool stops along the way. And it was a really, really fun conversation. So I hope you guys uh, enjoy listening to it as much as I had, uh, as much as I enjoyed recording it and talking to, to Coach Flaherty last week. So all of the music when we come back is that conversation from last Thursday. Joining me today on the Double Double is a special guest, the head women's basketball coach at Roanoke College, Carla Flaherty. She played her basketball and softball at Bates College in the NESCAC, where she was a thousand point scorer and was a two time first team all NESCAC performer. She began her coaching career at her alma mater as an assistant for the women's basketball and soccer teams before being named the head coach at LaSalle College. After four years at LaSalle, she was named the head women's basketball coach at Roanoke College in Virginia. In her six years at the helm, she has led the team to 84 wins in an appearance in the 2021 ODAC Conference Championship game. I'm thrilled you're taking the time to join me today. Coach, how's it going? It's great. You know, we um, we were able to get our season in and to experience, you know, being on the floor with each other. So we're just, we were grateful for our year. So I, I couldn't ask for anything better right now. Things are good. That's that's great to hear. And I have, you know, a bunch of questions of, about that, but we're going to work chronologically here Talk a little bit about where you grew up and kind of how you first started playing basketball and falling just in love with the sport. Sure. I grew up in Gore, Maine, um, and Maine is just a, a basket, high school basketball mecca, and I think it's just continuing to develop and grow. But um, Gorm High School, I, you know, I grew up watching our high school team compete for state championships and, and holding up gold balls 
um, when they won those championships. And that is what immediately caught my eye. And so I was like, you know what? I want one of those. And sports, I'm one of three girls. I'm the youngest. And so sports was just a way for me to spend time with my dad, honestly. I thought that was an attention-seeking thing, and it was an area that I just found my own personal confidence. Um, mm-hmm. And so I grew up playing all kinds of sports and and played soccer and basketball and softball and volleyball and just I loved it Um, but on the basketball court is where I really felt at home Mm -hmm. Um, so when I started you know this this whole journey I we ended up actually winning a state championship in high school way back in the day I graduated in 1999 Um, so that was the last state championship until this new wave of athletes um, the new wave of athletes Mackenzie Holmes who's currently uh, playing at Indiana she her class mm-hmm. um, really came in and dominated at Gorm, and, and they won a couple state championships. And, and so there's just powerhouse athletes that, that go through that school system. Um, and then from there, I just, you know, for me, college, I, I probably shouldn't say this out loud, but I, I wanted to pick a place i grew up next to the university of southern maine mm-hmm. and at that time they were a national powerhouse of women's basketball they got every good kid in the state of maine if that if if someone was good and they weren't going to the university of maine then they were coming down and going to the university of southern maine right. um and it was they were just you know playing in national championships i remember in high school they hosted the national championship and so i got to watch one of my teammates julie plant who was a senior at usm and i played with her in high school she played in the national championship so this this little state Maine had had this wonderful basketball um, you know basketball environment and right. so I I wanted to go to a school that had a chance at beating USM but I didn't mm-hmm. want to go to USM because they were five <laughs> minutes from my house so um, that really narrowed my search you know I was like I don't want to go more than two hours away so we started to funnel I wasn't really ready to go to college mm-hmm. if I'm being honest I just kind of delayed it I, I I wasn't excited you know some people have that plan. Um, my mom actually was like, we have to look at schools. So she kind of dragged me around a little bit. Um, and initially had brought me to check out Bates and I was like, no, I don't like it. And, Mm -hmm. uh, we did some schools, other searches and nothing really fit. And so Bates held a, what they call a main day where they only invite main athletes on campus. And my mom's like, we are going to this. (laughs) So she dragged me up. I mean, it was a pouring rain day. Um, Mm -hmm. but it was just an, um, an awesome day. I, you know, I sat in on a class. I really loved the faculty member, um, and ultimately just decided, yep, this is where I want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, now my father said, why don't you go to a school you can get into? <laughs> so from that point on, I was like, Oh, I am going because the right. competitive fiery personality came out. Um, I didn't honestly, at the time, I think now there's this big, um, everybody knows the NESCAC now. I, you know, when I was going to school, the NESCAC was definitely, you know, this wonderful academic and athletic league, but I don't think it was the same powerhouse and, and it right. didn't have that title and name recognition that it does now. Um, but, you know, luckily for me, it was a great, great fit for me um, athletically. And also I was able to prove to myself that, you know what, I, I do fit here academically because initially that was kind of like, Ooh, do I fit here? Do I belong? Right. Right. Um, but you know, going through it and going through the process, I was like, Oh yeah, I can do this. Um, so it was just a wonderful, wonderful four years for me there. Yeah. Can, can you talk just a little bit about, cause you know, nowadays it's the NESCAC on the women's side division three Amherst, Tufts, Bowdoin, not just the best typically in the conference, but among usually the seven or eight, depending on the year and who's ranking them best teams nationally. So just what was NESCAC women's basketball like when you were there? 
So I think NESCAC women's basketball, honestly, was very, very similar to what it is now. Mm -hmm. The difference was when I played, there were no at-large bids. The conference would not let any at-large bids take place. So only the team that won the league could go. So there were a lot of, and unfortunately for us, you know, my last couple of years, we kept running into Bowdoin and we'd lose in the championship. Mm -hmm. And we would sit there and I'd watch teams that we had beat by 50 going to the NCAA tournament. Yeah. That wouldn't happen this that wouldn't happen now you know we would have been a consistent national contender i believe um and then the year that they opened it up was right after i graduated and bates had you know two at-large bids so and that really started um the era i think at that time you know there was basketball in the state of maine as i mentioned earlier was just a powerhouse so Mm -hmm. um my first year actually so my first year playing we we didn't have even a NESCAC tournament. So it was just whoever won the league played. So we actually were in the NCAA tournament my freshman year. Mm -hmm. um, And then they established the the NESCAC tournament. So my freshman year, you know, I played with a couple of Americans and Bates was just a a premier program. Mm -hmm. Um, It was really us and USM, I think in the new England region, Uh, my coach's philosophy, you know, we never went on any trips. He's like the best basketball is playing and being played in New England. So (laughs) we would go to, we'd go to the Springfield tournament. And, you know, in that tournament, we were able to play some of the Trinity of Texas's and, um, but you know, the NESCAC Tufts at the time, you know, we all kept saying Tufts really should be a powerhouse. They weren't a huge powerhouse at the time. Um, we always had great battles with Williams. Mm-hmm. Um, I never lost to Williams in my entire four-year <laughs> career, but they were two-point, two-point games every single yeah. game. The Amherst's were really close. Middlebury at the time was really good. Um, and obviously the Bowdens and the Colbys at the time. Colby had uh, Bianca Belcher. She... Um, was a Maine native, um, Christy Warrior, who was a, a Lewiston native, played at Bowdoin. So there was a lot of just name recognition from Maine athletes playing at these schools. Um, so I really feel like when I played in the early 2000s, it was the Bates, Bowdoin, Colby. We were the top teams yeah. um, with USM in the mix. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah, it was it was pretty powerful. And I think, you know, the NESCAC shifts. It shifts. Um, Bowdoin dominated. And then Amherst dominated. And, you know, now Tufts is dominating. And then now it's circling back to Bowdoin. And hopefully the alma mater is getting up there. Allison, <laughs> um, who is the coach at Bates, she, I played against her. She, was, she played at Bowdoin when I played at Bates. And we were bitter rivals. Probably, you could use the word, despised each other. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now we're dear friends. And I'm so glad she's there. I think she's doing a wonderful job, you know, really rebuilding um the program to bring it back to the national dominance that it should be at so yeah when when go ahead when i was at wesleyan it was like the three-headed monster and it literally just felt like if you won the regular season it was this unbelievable costume because you didn't have to play this essentially like trench warfare 35 32 game in the semifinals to then do the same thing the next day yeah the champion was like the NFL equivalent of getting a first round bye, uh, yeah. <laughs> essentially with all, you know, due respect to the teams that came in fourth, fifth, whoever who was playing that. It's just, it's just a different level. Uh, yeah, but it, it really was. Yeah. And that's, and that was, I think, you know, I didn't realize it when we were in there cause we were just playing at one of the highest levels in the country. Um, but it was, it was always disappointing that we couldn't get the NCAA tournament because, you know, for us, we just couldn't get over the Bowden hump. They were becoming what, you know, the national, I think mm. the year we lost, they played in the national championship, yeah, that was um, but we lost Pumper. by two points. Yeah. Mm. And she was, she was unbelievable. She really transformed that program. But, um, so yeah, there was just a ton of good basketball. 
And so it still is. And so not only were you playing basketball at a really high level, you're also playing softball at Bates. And mm-hmm. as as much as I, as I like to joke with one of my good friends who who went to Bates, Bates is a tremendous academic institution. How did you balance all three of those? Um, you just when you're in it, you just figure it out. Mm-hmm. And I I credit. Um, my friends, I have the most brilliant friends in, in the entire world and smart human beings. Um, Katie Burke, who's um, she's the vice president, um, senior, I uh, can't even remember her exact title, but uh, executive at HubSpot in Boston. My friend Kim Martell, you know, she was the neuroscience major. Mm-hmm. Um, I have, you know, one friend who was the PhD in psychology, she's a doctor. And here, you know, I was like, yeah. I'm just a basketball coach. <laughs> um, I just, I love sports. But so we joke, Katie Burke and I would always joke around. She's like, I'm going to teach you how to study and you're <laughs> going to teach me how to relax and enjoy college because yeah. she was involved in everything. So I really feel like I surrounded myself with wonderful people. That's great. And then as a team, everybody, you know, you'd go to practice, you'd go to the library, you'd do your work, and you just fell in tune. And I honestly, you know, I hate to say this about myself, but if I was at a different school, I probably would have, you know, if if another group had just gone out and was like, hey, we don't study, I might have gone down that path. So I just Mm -hmm. think, you know, you become what your environment is. And so we were in this environment that worked hard, and we played hard, and we um, had a lot of fun. You know, my coach always said to us that hard work and fun is not incompatible. You mm-hmm. can do both. It's important to do both. So we had yeah. a ton of fun playing. Um, we had a ton of fun off the court. Our team was best friends. And so balancing the academic piece, it just, it, it became part of the process. Everybody there was so smart and just doing what they needed to do. If you went to class and did your work, which Again, it took me a little while to figure out how to balance and study, study properly. But, you know, it's a place that taught me how to write. I didn't I, mm-hmm. you think you go into college knowing what to do. Um, I mean, you went to Wesleyan, right? So, yeah. you know, it's just it teaches you how to function, essentially, in the real world, to be able to write, to be able to articulate and speak and um and think critically. I think that's one of the most important things about, you know, that education, which is, I know I'm fast forwarding, but why mm. I fell in love with Roanoke, because it reminded me so much of Bates. It's yeah. a place that forces you to think critically. To me, if you can get out into the real world and communicate, that's what sports teach you. And that's what I think education should teach you. So you graduate from, from Bates. Mm-hmm. Were you ever considering a career path? Cause at, cause at Bates people can go and do go into anything or everything out there that's possible what was your kind of desired career path or what you thought you wanted to do during college yeah so I actually I had no clue what I wanted to do which is Mm -hmm. why a liberal arts institution was perfect for me perfect yeah you know I became a rhetoric major I fell in love with my faculty member professor Stephanie Kelly Romano I mean we were what is rhetoric was probably one of the most difficult classes, but we studied the rhetoric of alien abductions and political speeches and, and rhetoric of women's rights. I mean, there was just so many things that all of a sudden piqued my interest. And my family was like, what are you going to do with a rhetoric degree? I'm going <laughs> to talk my way into any job that I want, um, which is almost exactly what I did because I, I – didn't want to coach you know mm. I grew up my whole life with my dad saying when you're a coach someday and I'm like I'm not coaching, I'm not coaching. <laughs> um and I was like you know I've done sports I know sports I want to know what else I can do um and so I actually my friends and I 
we just were like, hey, we're going to move to San Diego. So I got a job in finance. I didn't take I didn't take a business class or an econ class, nothing. Um, but the president was a Bates alum. We interviewed, and my friend who I was talking about earlier, who's a neuroscience major, we didn't have any type of a finance background, but they took a chance on us because. They were like, you know what? You've come from an environment where we feel like we can teach you. They taught us. They actually transferred, transformed their entire model for recruiting um, prospective um, employers because they were like, wait, we don't have to go after finance majors. If mm-hmm. we go after after individuals that can think critically and that we can teach, right, yeah. um, we'll have a whole other pool. So I actually did that for about eight months, um, moved out to San Diego, started this job, um, I sat in a cubicle and was like, oh my gosh, I cannot do this. I cannot <laughs> sit and st-. Like the year flew by and I was like, I stared at a wall. Um, and then my coach called me and he had, he had sent some game film mm-hmm. of the team and was like, Hey, check this out. What, you know, what do you think? And I had sent him back this long page of like, oh my God, this was awesome. And, and I think you guys really could utilize this post play. And, and I just, was having fun with it and he actually had sent that letter off to the athletic director oh wow suzanne coffee who um she eventually went to amherst in, but she was there they created a position for me and he called me up and, and offered me a job and i was like no <laughs> <laughs> my plan was to be in california for three years it wasn't mm-hmm. going to be you know viable for me to move out there it didn't make financial sense like no this is not my plan um i hate change which is ironic because I'm in coaching and we're living in a world of constant change. Um, but I also get bored. So it it was like, you know, coaching was this perfect world. And I knew that I would return to Bates as soon as he offered it. I just had to process that ask, if you will. And then I I actually called my father and said, you're never going to believe it. I don't know what to do. And he just said, you know what to do. And he was right. I knew that those opportunities don't happen. And so I went back and, um, I was actually an assistant soccer, basketball, and softball coach in my first year and then was an intern in the athletic department. So just immersed myself in athletics and I got to see what the other side was like and you learn so much about just the investment that coaches make in your experience and Mm -hmm. it was really eye-opening and awesome to be a part of because I was just Bates through and through you know I hated Bowdoin I hated (laughs) Colby I you know I really lived in that rivalry world for a long time probably took me 10 years to say okay I don't hate Bowdoin I just dislike them strongly but um no it was just it was it was great it was such a wonderful time in my life where I learned a lot met some incredible people and got to be a part of some awesome programs so you transition now you're back at Bates not just a major weather adjustment to say it mildly <laughs> from San Diego to, to Lewiston, but especially on you know, you're, you're coaching three teams, but on the basketball front, you're coaching former teammates. How did, yeah. how did that go where you're no longer, you know, you're still kind of their friend, but you're an authority figure. You know what they're doing on the weekends, right? Like how did you balance like that uh, new role? Yeah. You know, before I actually took the job, I called, um, the seniors and and most of the people on the team because yeah I had played with them and I got their opinion I just said what do you guys think I don't want to return if you think that this is going to be too difficult or challenging and it was a resounding oh my gosh come back um I think when I was a player I I really embraced and stepped into the leadership role Mm -hmm. with that group and um 
yes, I led them on and off the floor. But um, the basketball piece was so simple. I just naturally was able to communicate. I think that's one of my strengths is my ability to communicate with, you know, coaches, players, teammates. And um, I think, you know, they came back and were really excited about that level of communication that I could bring to the group, the enthusiasm. Um, you know, I, I love playing and they, you know, I was the leader because I was just going to do everything and lead by example. And I think when I came back, you know, my voice was heard because they knew the type of player I was. But in the same breath, I also, like you just mentioned, I said a really, in order to take the job, you have to stand and sit in a firm line. Mm -hmm. Um, now my teammates knew from when I was a player, like when I said something, I followed through. I never backed down. I think that's how you develop credibility. And that was who I was as a leader on the floor. And so when it came time to transition to coaching, um, when I said, Hey, you know, don't tell the freshman what we did (laughs) Um, (laughs) or, um, you know, I'm really going to have the coaching hat on. I need you to be respectful of that. I will be respectful of you in the same manner. Um, it just worked. There was never an issue, um, whatsoever. And so it really was a smooth, wonderful transition. Um, and I, I, like I said, they were really good. They, they had just all Americans and were able to step up and, and put together some wonderful seasons. So it was just fun. It was fun. Um, because you know, the transition, I, I got to be around my friends, but mm-hmm. I got to experience their journey from a different perspective. For sure. And while you're having all the success on the basketball court and your the basketball season is busy enough, it overlaps both semesters, mm-hmm. you're coaching soccer as well and in softball, but especially soccer, you eventually become, as I was reading, the co-head coach of the soccer team. Now, in my head, I just flash back to the storyline on the NBC sitcom The Office where Jim and Michael are co-regional managers and it doesn't work out. Like, what is a co-head coach? How did that come up? And just, like, what was that like where you're the head coach but not really? Yeah, so, um, again, the soccer team was – what was great at that time, and especially in the NESCAC, we had a lot of two-sport athletes. And yes, I, I actually feel do. sad that, that yeah, I think it's sad that, that people are going away from that at high school level and specializing because I just believe in in getting to know different coaches, getting to know different teams, being a part, using your body differently. So we had a lot of um, basketball. We had basketball, softball, crossover. But my, my head coach was the soccer and basketball coach. He was mm-hmm. when I played, and obviously when I got back, I just kind of got – lumped in with him um and again for me coaching is coaching like team dynamic obviously you have to have a background in the sport or a knowledge of the sport to be able to coach it but for me what I was learning was developing those um relationships and it's easy to be an assistant you know everything you say everyone thinks is gold Mm -hmm. um it's always the head coach who is the one that you're like questioning um but coach Murphy he he had been doing two for so long and he really wanted to transition out and Bates at the time, um, they weren't allowing that position to be split. He had, mm-hmm. he had been told that they were going to, and then for some reason, I don't know what happened. So he took a sabbatical. So I okay. became the interim head coach. Um, and then when he came back, that's when they gave us the co-head coach title. So I had one year um, by myself, and then when he returned, it was my last year, um, and we did it together. Now, I still actually ran everything, and he kind of deferred to me. Um, but again, we had so many crossover athletes that it was just a, a – 
I worked really well with him. I had so much respect for him. I would bounce ideas off of him, but he really helped me jumpstart my coaching career and wanted to give me that opportunity. So when I did start applying for basketball jobs, it's so competitive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, everyone's like, oh, you need to have head coaching experience. Well, someone at some point has to give you a chance to be a head coach. Everyone's like, oh, they're just an assistant. Well, someone's got to take a chance. You know, I was fortunate because I was able to say, hey, while I haven't been a head basketball coach, I have been a head soccer coach. And what is that response? It's the it's the scheduling. It's the budgeting. I've done all of that. And then now I've been able to, you know, do this coaching Mm -hmm. and be a part of and responsible for two teams. So um, being, a, I don't think co-coach can work in a lot of situations. <laughs> I know that there's a lot of issues, you know, at, at times I know, you know, for example, at Amherst, there were co-head coaches when I played yeah. and it was a cluster. Um, and so they, they did away with that. But for me and coach Murphy, it was always, you know, as a player, I just have so much admiration and respect for him. And as a coach, it was the same thing and vice versa. I think he always saw something in me that I didn't at the time see in myself. And he was always there to kind of help guide me in that journey. So the the title didn't really matter. It was what we were doing together. Mm -hmm. Now you do get that opportunity to, to be a head coach at LaSalle. But before that, when you're an assistant, it's clear, you know, even though you're coaching soccer, you had some softball coaching experience. Basketball was really the sport that that you wanted to coach. Right. And so. And so. But was there, you know, this moment either in a in a practice that that you recall or or a game or is it this compilation of all this time where where you're thinking to yourself, I can do this. My you know, I am ready and I want to be a head coach like I am ready for this. Yeah. And I think, yes, I think that was the last year. So I always said, Mm. everyone's like, you stayed at Bates so long. And when I was interviewing for jobs, I started to get that question. And I said, look, I stayed at Bates until I felt like I couldn't learn anything more. So I was there for six years. And through that journey, I had done three sports. And then I had been an interim head coach. And then when I felt like we were starting to, you know, the last year where we were co-head coaches, I'm like, okay, I was a head coach. I don't ever want to go backwards. And in the Mm. last year, you do, you start to get your own opinions. You start to, you know, I was on the sideline as an assistant, always up and down screaming things. And, um, and so, yeah, you, you will know, and I say this to everybody, when you're in that assistant role, you're like, okay, now two things, you think, you know, everything until you're actually on the hot seat and doing it for yourself. Um, but no, it was definitely in that last year, like, okay, I'm ready. And I, I had thought, in my mind that Bates was my ultimate dream job. And I had talked to my coach and he's like, you know, I'm not going to retire for a while. Um, so it's probably best that you go so you can come back. So we had Mm -hmm. those open discussions and that was my vision. That was my journey. Um, which was very similar to, you know, when I said, okay, I'm going to San Diego for three years. This is what I'm doing. I'm like, okay, I'll go coach for four years and then I'll go back to Bates. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously things don't work out that way for a reason, you know, and, and, um, but that, that was the plan. It was like, okay, I'm ready to move on. It's time. And I knew, I knew that last year at Bates was going to be my last year. I was very confident. I knew I had the skill set. I was like, I can get a job. Now let's go figure out where we can go. And so you stay in the Northeast, you go to LaSalle first year was tough. The team goes one and 24 overall. Oh, and 12 in the conference. Coming from the NESCAC during your own playing career and coaching career of, of all the sports, history of winning or, or even if you're not winning every single game, you feel like you're legitimately competing in every single game that, that you play. What was that first season like for you personally where just from 
the outside seems like everything went wrong? Um, it was, I will say, the second hardest year of my life because actually my second year at LaSalle was probably harder than the first year. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you take a job and I, I knew that the program needed growth and development. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew it needed energy and effort and enthusiasm. And I was like, I got this. I can do this. And, yeah, you walk through those doors. I mean, you have to in the coaching world. You walk in confident. I got this. I can change this. I can turn it around. Um, and so the first year where we won one game, um, I remember the very first game and we, we lost by like 30 and I remember calling my, my dad and I said, Oh my gosh, like I've, I've never lost by 30 in anything mm-hmm. sports, but like card games, board games. Yeah. Like, I, I, I like, I just don't lose by 30. You know, that was my mindset. And, um, and then we played toughs actually the second game and, I never lost to Tufts. Like we, we played Tufts great and Tufts beat us by 50. Mm-hmm. So I had the same call, the same phone call with my dad and was like, Oh my God, I lost by 50. I've never lost by 50. <laughs> and it was just, it was eye opening, you know? Um, and one of the things, you know, you said everything went wrong that could go wrong. Um, one of the things that I learned, I think losing is one of the biggest lessons everyone needs to go through. Um, I think I started to take winning for granted. And so I I believe things in life do happen and there's a purpose for everything. So those first two years, my second year was harder because I had my first recruiting class and I thought, I got this, you know, we're going to make this huge leap. I've got four freshmen that are studs that I love. Um, And we went Mm -hmm. four and 21. That was the hardest year because my expectation, my first year was like, okay, we just, I need to make this fun for these kids because we're not very good. But it can't be a miserable experience. And then my second year was, yeah, let's go win. And we were trying to do that with four freshmen. You, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, yeah. like that's just not a task um, that you can put on four kids that have never played college basketball. So that was the hardest year for me. But it was also a year of true reflection because in the first two years, I, you know, I had always in my entire life. Um, based my worth on winning. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I mentioned in high school, it was where I was comfortable. It's where I flourished. It's where I got recognition. You know, I was probably, it were really, in, not probably, was a really insecure kid. So sports just made me feel good about myself. And that continued and I got accolades and I got that positive reinforcement. So when you're thrust out of that, you know, I had to do a lot of self-identification. Number one, this isn't about me. Yeah. You know, I had, I had my time in sports and I played at the highest level and had a wonderful experience. My job is to do that for this group. How do I make it positive? How do I make it successful? And guess what? I'm still the same person. I'm still a good person. I'm still someone that's going to work hard. I'm going to get this job done. Um, and so it, it was a year of true reflection and it was invaluable Two of the hardest years, but I think laid the foundation for what it meant for me to get into the coaching realm. And And so go ahead. I was going to say that, you know, I always try to remind myself of the human element of coaching as that, yes, coaches, it's a, they have passion for the sport, whether it's football, baseball, basketball, whatever. But when people, especially in division one, because we had a lot of guys who got fired on the men's side and the women's side this, this past week, where it, where it is a profession where yeah. where you at the end of the day fairly or unfairly the judgment is in wins and losses all the time especially at the division 1 but not as much at division 3 but still even at the division 3 level the following year when when you guys go into winter break 0 and 10 were 
you concerned at all about your your job's you know status or just like how to recruit just like being starting one in 34 um honestly no um and this is probably not a fair statement but um i didn't actually feel i think each institution is different you Mm -hmm. know and i think um there are realistic expectations. There are hurdles that you face um, and you have to be in the right environment. And so, you know, I think LaSalle was in a place where they wanted to field a team and they, yes, they wanted to be good, but you know, there are resources that have to go into success. Um, We were, there's, I feel so fortunate at Roanoke because my first job is to coach. Mm -hmm. And there are so many coaches in this country who give so much time, but coaching is sometimes the fifth priority. You know, you are a game manager, you are um, a student advisor, you have all of these other responsibilities. And so I felt like I was doing a lot at LaSalle. And no, I wasn't worried because I did feel like I had a great group and I felt like we were moving in a positive direction. I really, truly never once at LaSalle felt like my job was in jeopardy. Um, and I knew with the kids that we had that we were going to be able to turn it around. And honestly, that is the same thing here at Roanoke. Um, I think Roanoke is a place a little bit different than LaSalle where the expectation was, hey, you need to win. Mm-hmm. Boom. Um, and the first two years was rough. And you just have to stay the course. You have People are going to doubt you because, like you just said, you are judged on your wins and losses. Mm-hmm. When I got the job at Roanoke, everyone's like, why are you hiring someone who can't win? And, you know, that was all the media. That was all the news outlets. And I just had to put my head down and stick to what um, I believed in. And I knew that if I did that, good things would happen. So that's what happened at LaSalle. And that's what happened here at Roanoke. So. So, um, and, and you have to just quiet the noise, I guess. Yeah. And, and at LaSalle, you were able to turn around, you know, the third year, 10 wins, next year, 12 wins. You could see, just, you know, growth is, is occurring. Mm-hmm. What's the driving force behind that turnaround? Because from afar, you could just say, okay, it's recruit, the first recruiting class is older, better players, adjusted to, to the system. But when you're in it every single day, you get, you have so much better sense than just like looking at the box scores the way I do. What do you feel like was the driving force behind the, the turnaround and, and the growth that LaSalle was having under your tenure? Well, I mean, I think I was able to, you know, get out, recruit, um, from some different regions and just that I had been familiar with from my experience at Bates. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Again, as a new coach, I think it takes you a little while, but LaSalle had um, two majors. They had athletic training and they had fashion. So (laughs) when I initially got there, I was like, oh, there's not going to be any fashion basketball players. And that's a young, naive coach when you Mm -hmm. step into that role. There's a lot of basketball players who are interested in fashion. And there are a ton of basketball players who are interested in athletic training. Mm -hmm. So it was really honing in on those two skills um, in the recruiting process. What are you interested in? And if they weren't, I I began to understand the pecking order. You know, I always was at the top. When you're recruiting debates, you can go after the very, very top kid. Mm -hmm. At LaSalle, we were middle of the ground when it came to athletics. So I knew I was going to lose some kids. And I think I started out really going after some top-notch kids. Um, I mean, I went after a kid that went to Bowdoin. Of course you're going to go to Bowdoin. Like, Mm -hmm. when you have that opportunity, you go to Bowdoin. Um, And so I think it was just figuring out the niche and in that process i think i was able to find the right kids and again 
it's about finding the best fit. Mm -hmm. And so it it took me maybe a year to do that. And then we started to get the kids in that I I think really loved their experience at LaSalle that um, really bought into, you know, playing at a higher level and turning a program around. So I think that was the mindset. So after four years at LaSalle, you leave, you become the new head women's coach at Roanoke. You kind of mentioned it a little bit before about how about what drew you to to Roanoke and a little bit like it was like Bates, but but really what drew you to Roanoke because it's I'm you know not a geography but it's pretty far from the Northeast and where you've had a lot a lot of you know comfort and success basketball wise. Yeah, so in my recruiting process, when I'm talking to student athletes, you know, I really talk to them about trusting their gut. Mm -hmm. You know, I could want them because they are the best athlete in the world, but they also need to want Roanoke or LaSalle or Bates. It's a two-way street. And I always tell them, you know, in the journey of looking for colleges, you're going to get a feeling and you have to trust your gut. It's the one time in your life that you can be selfish. So be selfish. It'll make your coach's job easier to make your life easier. Trust your gut. Um, And so when the athletic director called me, you know, I had actually, I I was a finalist at Middlebury. I I thought I was convinced I was getting that job. I'm like, Mm -hmm. I got this. Um, and I didn't. And I was like, Oh my gosh, what? I thought, you know, okay. And two days later, I get a call from the athletic director at Roanoke and he's good friends with the athletic director at Middlebury and Mm -hmm. and the AD at Middlebury had said, you know, really go check this, check this young woman out. So, and Scott called me. I was like, I'm not moving to Virginia. No way. <laughs> <laughs> but I was like, you know what? Just give it a chance. Check it out. Go look. And when I got down here, I did exactly what I talked to my athletes about. You know, I went on the tour. I just took it all in. It, you know, geographically, it actually looks very similar to Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that they had a vision just institutionally. It reminded me of Bates, which was my comfort zone and my home. And I saw a vision. I saw, okay, the history. And, you know, every coach wants to land at a place where, A, they can see some longevity, but success. And I feel and felt strongly that Roanoke was a place where we could win a national championship. Mm -hmm. And that was the final home. And so when I was going through the process, I remember calling, you know, I have wonderful parents, so I always use them to bounce ideas off of, but I just remember saying, how do you like it? And it was like, I think they put parking lots in weird places down here. (laughs) And my mom mom was like, that's it. I'm like, I can't find anything wrong. I'm like, Oh my God, am I going to move to Virginia? And they were like, if you don't like it, you don't have to stay. But I was like, but all the coaches on the coaching staff have been here. They don't leave like the coaches, which to me speaks volumes to the institution and the mm-hmm. department. Um, but I was like, Oh my God, what is my life? Just what am, what am I going to do? But you know, I was single at the time. I had nothing to lose. And I'm almost like, let's go, let's go all in. And I'm so grateful that I did, but yeah, it was a leap of faith. Um, and I, I took it. I don't think, I think chances come across, you know, you earn them, but there's also things that happen and and you have to recognize when to say yes. Yeah. And so basketball wise, you're now adjusting to a new conference again, but especially in a a different part of of the country, because a lot of Northeast teams, in my experience, when when you play teams from the Northeast, they tend to play one way. And then when we play teams from out of region, it's still basketball, but it's a little bit different. I know when I adjusted to the NESCAC coming from high school, you know, you're watching YouTube, you're, you're, you're trying to read something. Okay. You know, the learning curve of adjusting to what the NESCAC basketball was, was all about. How did you adjust to the ODAC, whether it's all the teams, the schemes, coaching preferences, players, just everything that goes into 
not just, okay, we're now in the ODEC, but I need to try to beat these people. Yeah. Well, so I, I think I brought a, a unique perspective. And I will tell you, again, I think, you know, every coach has a learning curve. And I, when I came down here, just like my experience at LaSalle, you know, and I didn't look at that fashion major. I was like, nope, there's not going to be, you know, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get all my kids from New England because mm-hmm. that was my comfort zone. That is what I was used to. Um, plus, I do feel like in region where we are now, Roanoke is an institution in our conference. We're one of the only schools that really does pull from across the country. Mm-hmm. So I felt like that could be my niche. Um, in the same breath, I do feel like I missed out on a lot of local, you know, I wasn't familiar recruiting in North Carolina or Virginia Um, and so I think for the first year or two I didn't focus here as much as I should have Um, I will fully admit that but um, that was how I thought okay I'm going to be able to compete on this level you know when I was playing at Bates all you know you we were always looking because we were always in the top 20. So you're looking at who's in the top 20 yeah. and I'd always see Macon. I'd always see Randolph Macon. I'm like, who is this Randolph? <laughs> you know, and now they're in my league and we're playing against a team that, you know, eventually, I mean, they had the national player of the year. She was amazing. So it, it felt very similar um, to the NESCAC where there were just so many good teams. There yeah. isn't a game in the ODAC that you can just show up um, and play, you know, and, and on the men's side too, it's just like the NESCAC where there's, three or four teams that could be competing for a national championship. Right. Um, I think we're getting there on the women's side. Um, it's not as competitive, but definitely very competitive. So I was just trying to figure out um, wh- which regions could I be successful in. And so, and also at, at Bates, when I was recruiting there and at LaSalle, you had very um, strict uh, admissions standards so i knew exactly who to recruit at bates you had to have a certain gpa you had to have a certain sat you know these were the kids that you had to go after at lasalle it was the same exact thing and roanoke it's all over the place um because there's different majors and and you know each year you know our admissions is changing you know we didn't have really admission and now we do so there was just a lot of growth i think happening at roanoke that i've been able to be a part of too which mm-hmm. is wonderful um so they've transitioned and changed and, and it's an institution that really wants to get back to being a national powerhouse and so i think we've been able to collaborate together and it's taken that effort. Obviously, a new facility like we have doesn't hurt. Right. <laughs> um, you know, you, you can still contact. We're walking a higher caliber athlete through the gym now because we have a Division One facility. Um, yeah, so, I'm, yeah, I'm curious to see what happens in the NESCAC because Colby this past year unveiled their $200 million athletic facility. Yeah. Like they were LSU or something. It was, you yeah. know, craziness. But, it, you know, from, you know, their website, it looks great. Unfortunately, the pandemic hit and – not a lot of people right. have, have been able to, to go there, but it all but helps. Still, you know, yeah. it, a lot of it, it, you can have the best facilities. You know, I, I, I tell people in my recruiting all the time, like we have some of the best facilities. You're going to get one of the best educations, but if you're not surrounded by good people, mm-hmm. none of it matters. Right. You also have to have a collaboration between your president and your athletic director. And, you know, there are institutions that do and institutions that don't. Um, and I think, you know, with the NESCAC being so competitive, you know, some of the institutions require SATs. Some mm-hmm. don't. I think, yeah. does Colby still require SATs? Uh, I've, I'm not sure they I can't remember, you know, but that was always what kept them back. Like there were certain schools that there were great, great students who didn't necessarily test well. Mm-hmm. And I feel like some of the NESCACs would miss out on them just by different standards. So you can have a $200 million facility, but you still have to figure out, 
you know, how to support individuals financially and yeah. how to support individuals, you know, academically. And I think, again, each institution across the country is trying to figure that out. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to eventually when the pandemic is all behind us to go up and, and check it out because it looks it looks super cool. But as as you mentioned, you know, a lot of recruiting and you said a lot of team building is isn't good people and, and, and the right fit. And, and a lot of people and a lot of coaches correlate getting the, the right people and, and the right fit with this, you know, this culture of, of a team, a program, school, whatever. And culture is this, this buzzword that everyone uses, means different things in different programs. Cultures of certain types can still end up with insane levels of success. Like, you know, mm-hmm. the Golden State Warriors culture is very different, very different than the, than the New England Patriots. And they both have won an incredible amount of championships. Do, right. you, do you use the word culture at all? And, and if you do, kind of how do you define it? Well, I will tell you, yes. You know, when I talk to recruits, I guess I talk about culture. Um, but that's just because it makes it easier to explain. With our team, we, we definitely use, you know, the cliche family. that we In this journey, it to me was about creating family. And that definition means that you're not always going to get along, you're going to have disagreements, but there's an ultimate um, definition of having each other's back. You will always support each other and you're always going to have this common goal. And so uh, being very, you know, open, the first couple of years here at Roanoke were really challenging. Um, you know, Roanoke, has fraternities and sororities which at Bates we don't have that and so that was very different for me we had a lot of individuals who were um, involved in the Greek life and I am not knocking the Greek system I think the Greek system my whole family is Greek um, except for me because we didn't have it but um, you know what I discovered I when I came to Roanoke I really tried to observe you know you don't want to come in and just be a tornado without knowing what the environment's like. So, you know, we had several girls who were in sororities and I tried to figure out, okay, what's this balance? What, what I ultimately came to was you really can't do it. You can't be in a sorority and be a basketball player for two reasons. Their time commitment is just like athletics. You know, they had mandatory meetings, weekend events, um, you know, they were asking to miss games because of one, you know, Greek system and, and they would get fined. And so mm-hmm. it was this balance. And I just finally said, you know, if you want to be in a sorority, that is like being on a team. And so we, 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 for my program, um, that's not the case for all the programs, but for our program, because of the longevity of the season, we just had to draw a line in the sand to say, here, you have to be obviously you're a student first, but basketball needs to be the number one priority. And once we did that, we saw a shift in the mindset of, okay, here's what it takes to be successful. We talked about it in the recruiting process. And once we got that culture of, you know, A, I want to come in and win a championship and I only want kids that want to come in and win a championship. You need to be a part of something bigger than yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, but then how do we do that? And so one of the things we, we talk about every single day is leaning into each other. And and so when things get challenging, you have to lean in. We can't turn away. And um, each day we talk about it and we reinforce that. And I think in the recruiting process, um, that's what we look for. And so we were able to really hone in on the right individual who wanted to come in and be a part of that. And it probably took three to three to four years for me to truly have that um, cohesive group all on the same page. And now mm-hmm. we're really protective of it. 
you know, at LaSalle, it was like, who can we get? I got to go out. I got to recruit all these people. We got to build. We got to grow. And now at Roanoke, we're at this wonderful place where it is a two-way street. We get right. to be selective. There's a lot of really good basketball players out there, but you have to be a good human being first and foremost. You know, and that's, uh, you know, one of the strong foundations of our program. We just have wonderful young women um, who truly are a team first group and to me that's how I know um, we're going to continue to grow and be successful is is that type of a mindset and we talk about it on a daily basis but we also are very protective of it right um, there isn't anybody that can come in you know it only takes one and so we make sure in our journey we do the we do the work to um, ensure that we get the right type of fit and so th- this is kind of the the chicken and the egg question that everyone has about culture and I guess mm-hmm. team building now nowadays is does good culture create winning or does winning create good culture? It's both. <laughs> I mean, you can't you can't really pick one or the other. I, you know, for me and my own personal experience, I, I believe that culture has created winning. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think that now that we have won it will help enhance our culture. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we'll be able to get the kids who will contribute and grow and be a part of this wonderful culture um, and continue that because they've seen the success and they want to be a part of it. Um, but it took a very special group. Honestly, my seniors graduating this year, um, you know, they didn't see a lot of time on the floor, but I give them all the credit. I'm so sad that they're leaving because they were my my culture creators. They were the workhorses. They were here when it was really hard, when we were mm-hmm. losing, when people were doubting and questioning us. They put their heads down. They're the ones who talked to, you know, the recruits coming in, who got them to say, oh, yeah, I want to be a part of this. Um, they're the ones who stepped up. And when we brought in people who were better than them, they didn't complain. They showed up at practice they worked hard they did their jobs they laid the foundation and it takes that special group to build um and we were just so fortunate to have that here yeah it's it's this million dollar question and i feel like it's different at the college level versus the the pro level because at the pro level the teams are and the players are are so good you know you you talk about you know the the san antonio spurs are held to this level of of incredible team culture and and they do it's been a reason why they win but they get the the dumb luck of the one year david robson gets hurt and they're terrible tim duncan and they get their own pick it's tim duncan who is one of the 10 best basketball players of all time and so they just and then you know it would have been very hard for a team with tim duncan and david robinson to be bad you know Right, yeah. So well, I think Division Three mm-hmm. is just so different than anything else yeah. because, you know, you're not getting paid mm-hmm. to to play. People are choosing to come here. They're choosing to give up their time. They're choosing to, you know, spend holidays away from their families and and hours a day in the gym or the weight room, um, sacrificing not getting to go on a spring break. And so, it's a different mindset. I think the Division Three athlete. It's just something really special. It's why I wanted to stay at this level mm-hmm. um, because you know at those higher levels you are you, it's a different type of management you still have to manage culture but you're dealing with all these other factors and yeah. um, you know at our level you, you, you don't have to deal with a prima donna you you can say hey this this is about something bigger than yourself um, and I think probably like you at the division one level, like it is 100% win or go home. Like mm-hmm. you'll be fired if you don't. And I do think that that's trickled down to the division three level. Hands down. I think, you know, if you aren't successful in institutions that expect you to be successful, you will lose your job. Um, but I, in this whole journey, you know, finally, again, I, I attribute it to my experience at LaSalle. 
um, at Roanoke, it was, I'm going to do this my way. I believe in myself. I believe in my journey. Mm-hmm. Winning is hard. LaSalle taught me that. It, yeah. Change can't necessarily happen overnight. Can it be done at some places? Absolutely. But, you know, I think the laying the proper foundation for success is the most important thing. And so it took us a little bit, you know, it took us a while here to filter that out. But we've got the right thing. And um, and it's been fun to see everybody now get on board. Yeah, it's 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 been working and growing. You know, skipping ahead, I want to ask you about this this past season. But 2018, 19, you guys win 18 games the following year. You win 18 games again. This year, you, you win 10 games you know, in this abbreviated, crazy, weird season. Last year, you know, towards the end of the season, late February, you know, we were sort of starting to get aware of it, but the world was spinning in a way and preparing something that I don't think we fully grasped yet. Right. What? When was the first time that you heard the word coronavirus? Um, Honestly, I think it was when, because we had bought tickets to go to the Final Four in New Orleans, mm-hmm. um, and I actually was pregnant um, oh, last wow. season. Yeah, and so we had played in our championship, and, and I had just told the team that I was you know, expecting, and we were going to go to New Orleans. And my, my parents actually called and they were like, whoa, have you heard about this? And I'm like, it's no problem. And they were like, you're going to have a baby. There, there's a pandemic. And I'm like, no, no. And then we had gone to um, North Carolina to watch some of the regional uh, championships. And the next day they canceled the games. And that's kind of mm-hmm. when everything hit me. And it was, okay, we're not, the Final Four got canceled. But it was probably, you know, right after our season finished, everybody started talking about it. And it really honestly I think Amherst garnered a lot of attention when they can't they were the first school I believe to cancel um in person you know allowing anybody in the gym and they took a lot in this region anyway they took a lot of flack for that but then the dominoes just started to fall and then it just got crazy yeah it was it was Amherst and it was Hopkins and Hopkins you're like all right these people are geniuses they're probably being on the side of caution but also a little bit like what do they know, you know, right. <laughs> yeah. compared yeah. to c- compared to the rest of us. But once everyone was, was sent home, because it was it was pretty amazing where once it did hit and it happened, ev- basically every college student went home, was sent home for the semester, basically in three to four days all around the right. country. Right. And well, ours was a little strange. Like, yeah. You know, I know because I still have obviously, you know, friends at Bates and it was like, OK, everybody went home, you know, at Roanoke. It was go home for two weeks and you'll be coming back. Mm-hmm. So we had this element of all of our students left their stuff here. Oh, wow. Um, and so they went home and then it was like, then we as a college went through this journey of how are we going to get these kids reconnected with their stuff? Yeah. Um, and we had to bring shifts back. It was, a, it was a big ordeal here because we didn't have the foresight to say, okay, this is going to be, this is going to be a while. We yeah. thought, yeah, two weeks. And regionally, again, we did the lockdown. We did everything, but, um, it hit New England a heck of a lot harder in the beginning than it did us. And my yeah. family's up there. You know, my sister's in an 800 square foot apartment and, and she was quarantined. And, you know, I live out and I'm like, I can go walking everywhere. I, mm. You know, I'm not around people. So it was just a very different feel down here in the beginning. Yeah. Um, and then I think everybody got engulfed. Yeah, it was. We were on spring break at Wesleyan and we had seen, you know, it was it was like the dominoes. Every nest cack was falling. Everyone's sending home. Mm-hmm. We were just like, all right, well our administration's just drafting the, they're just drafting the email, right? It's, mm-hmm. we know it's going to mm-hmm. happen. But then it was the same thing for me at least, which was, 
all right, well, I have to go get my stuff because I brought most of it home knowing, all right, this we, we probably will have an extended spring break. But yeah, then it was like, all right, well, now I have to go get the rest of my stuff. But, yeah. uh, you know, as as you said, you know, I'm from New York City. It hit us. We were the epicenter oh, yeah. at the beginning here in the U.S. because Seattle and San Francisco were really first in February and very early March. But then mm-hmm. it got it hit us the, the hardest. And that, that was just a crazy, crazy, just incredibly dire month ish really and but so the whole world learned about this really cool software called zoom that Mm -hmm. uh skype blew a 3-1 lead in the video chatting (laughs) uh game but how did you stay in touch with the team because everyone is doing zoom you're doing zoom classes zoom fatigue is real everyone's home with different resources some kids have as you said a lot of space where they can go for a run other kids are in apartment buildings where they have I have a carpet in, in my living room. Right. You know, so this was just, it was a really unique time in my life in particular, um, in addition to having mm-hmm. to navigate coaching a team. So I'm about to have a baby and she was yeah. due September 1st. Um, and so, you know, I'm like, she better be on time because I've got <laughs> basketball and, you know, there's no maternity leaves in sports. Like that doesn't happen. And that was the question. I was like, oh, you're going to take maternity leave. And, and with COVID, I was able to take a maternity leave. I was mm-hmm. able to be at home and enjoy that experience and check in with the team. And we weren't really sure. So I I personally did not have the, hey, we're going to talk every single Monday at this time. Yeah. Because I think there was just so much uncertainty. I wanted everybody to be at home, be with their families, feel safe. Um, we checked in, certainly, but it wasn't the diligent, we're going to do X's and O's over Zoom. Um we probably connected every two weeks, every three weeks, just to say hi, or mm-hmm. I would give them information as to what um, was going on. And so then when it came time to actually return to school, um, we had, again, I feel like Roanoke did a wonderful job with our testing and they were like, Hey, we, we want to get students back. We want to have, mm-hmm. you know, the experience. And so um, we had, when they, we maybe started like two weeks later. Um, and so we, everybody had to come back with a negative test and, and we had, you know, stepped up. We gave our team an option. Um, so you could either come or take the semester off. And the school had this hybrid model. We actually had four women choose to stay home. And mm-hmm. so we knew we were going to be having an unconventional beginning of the season anyway, and that it was just going to be an opportunity to, you know, try to get some workouts in to try to create some sense of normalcy. Um, I have, you know, we talk about this, I think at LaSalle, I had one of the most amazing coaches on staff in Todd Montana. Um, he just is this genius mind, um, and was wonderful as a resource for me. I have the most amazing associate head coach in Allison Nichols. You know, she, she coached at Randolph here in the league left, um, and went to work for a recruiting service and then really wanted to get back into coaching. I mean, she's a head coach. Mm -hmm. So to have essentially two head coaches, two brains, two, um, two of everything has been amazing. And so she was, she was instrumental for our program this year because I had been on maternity leave and then I actually got COVID. My whole family did. Um, and we were kind of that perfect case example. Like we, we did everything quote unquote, right. Mm -hmm. I mean, we didn't see anybody. We didn't go out. My husband went to work. I didn't even come into the, to school. Um, I had a newborn and 
we only, when I, st- I was, I had literally started to transition back to work. I'd been at work for one week and his aunt was coming in to take care of the baby. I have no, we don't know to this day where right. she got it from, but she got it, came in and boom, our whole family got it. Um, and so then I was forced to go out, you know, um, my husband got it the worst. Um, my baby got it. That was oh, wow. really, that was really scary. Yeah. Um, and then I, but I just lost my sense of smell and taste. That was, that was it. Um, but that meant that I had to quarantine for, I was quarantining for three weeks um, because I had to quarantine because my husband got it first and then I ended up get tested. And so anyway, long story short, it just, it took a long time for me to even come back this year. Mm. And um, so Allison Nichols really took the reins in the beginning when everyone was, you know, working out and, and getting into the gym and we were doing, you know, individual workouts she kind of led that i got to come back in you know a week before our first game so um it was it's just and it was an interesting year to say the least well i'm glad that you're okay and that the whole family's okay because once you're because once you're confronted with covid it's incredibly frightening and and scary no matter when you get whether you were one of the first cases back in march or if you tested positive this March, you know, it's right. We we only know so much about it. Mm-hmm. We know a lot more than we did last year at this time, but we still only know yeah. s- so much about it. While you're going through this and you get COVID and you're dealing with all the protocols, one, just did you ever think that you would not have a season? And two, once once the season said, okay, the Odex said, okay, we're going to play. How stressful was your day to day life? So, um. My, my husband was like, you're not having a season. There's no way you're going to have a season. And I was like, no, I think we can. I think we can. Um, being honest, once once my family got COVID, I actually relaxed a little bit. I was very stressed out, convinced that it was going to be me that was going to infect my family, my daughter. And, you know, I'm like, I'm the one going to COVIDville. The campus is going to be, you know, blown up with COVID. And so honestly, after we experienced COVID as a family and it was not fun, but we got through it, my anxiety level went way down. Mm. Um, But also, again, I think, you know, your job as a coach is to reflect. I think there were times where I forgot the anxiety um, that my team was going through because I'd been there and I had a different mindset. Like, okay, here we go. We're good. Um, we tested three days a week. And so I knew one of the things, my team is just, they're just amazing. And they, they sacrificed, you know, we talked about sacrifice. They kept to their own bubble. We, we felt like we were fine because we pushed back our, um, student body our regular student body coming back so we mm-hmm. actually had like an athletic bubble going on oh, cool. and i yeah and i knew that they respected and wanted to play so badly that they were going to do what needed to be done um but yeah it was constant did i think we were going to be one of the only teams in the odec that wouldn't test positive no i thought when is it going to happen can it happen early so that we might be able to play and get back like you were constantly trying to run scenarios and then you just eventually say we can only control what we can control let's show up today let's make sure we're together we're a unit we're a family and let's make sure we get better mm-hmm. um and they did that and so we just kept pushing through and we were one of the first teams all of our games kept getting canceled from our opponents mm-hmm. having to uh, cancel due to COVID issues on their respective teams. So there were definitely times where I thought, oh, gosh, are we going to make it through? And there were times where I said, gosh, this ODEC tournament's going to come down to whoever's left standing. Yeah. Um, 
but what we said was if there's a championship and our conference is going to have it, then we're going to do everything we can to make sure we're playing in it. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we attacked this season. And even with all the starts and stops and, and everything, you guys go 10-3, and three, very successful season, fall in the ODAC championship game in a good, close, com- competitive game. But just overall, as, as you're going through the season, where, as you mentioned, cancellations on the other side, where we saw this in college football, college basketball, you, the game is scheduled to start, but you cannot commit that the game will actually happen until the ball is in the air for the tip-off. Because up until then, the yeah. game could get postponed, practice canceled. What was that experience like where you're – because coaches spend a lot of time prepping for games, writing yeah. practice plans, knowing – like what was that like where you do all this prep, put your whole heart and soul into it, and you just don't know until – with all the uncertainty about – is this thing that I just spent 18 hours prepping for actually going to happen? Um, you just have to, you just have to take it day by day. And you, mm-hmm. you know, if you, if you get punched, you have to just get back up. And our focus as coaches was how do we make sure that we keep our players mentality um, intact? You know, we, how do we keep them motivated? It is really hard. You know, in the NSCAC, we don't, start basketball till November 1st mm-hmm. here we get to start October 15th so you know we usually have a month where we're prepping before our first game and that's a long month it's a great month for us coaches getting to put stuff in but for the players you know we're able to break it up with some scrimmages it is hard to show up to practice every day when you don't know what you're playing for yeah. and so we had to make sure we kept a focus on what are we playing for okay this one got canceled I mean we were scrambling I would fill games in um so uh, we were actually 10 and two. One of those games was an exhibition okay. game against CNU. We lost by two, but gotcha. it was, that was a game where it was like a last minute. Hey, do you want to play? We now have this full week gap. We were just trying to make sure we didn't go 10 days without a game, which at times that's what it was starting to look like. So then we were able to plug in Southern Virginia. And so, and it was a battle, you know, the administration's wanting to help us out, but every time you add a non-conference game, you're also adding, you know, the potential for something to happen mm-hmm. and contact and exposure. So it was just a balance, but um, we just tried to make it fun. And we tried to remind our athletes of why they were doing this. And for them, and you talk about it, sometimes practice is just the best time of the day for, you know, anybody in mm-hmm. a regular year, it hands down was the best time of the day for them. They were allowed out of the dormitories, you know, yeah. there's strict protocols on campus. They were allowed to come in and not wear a mat. We didn't practice with masks because again, we tested so much, which is a wonderful testament to Roanoke. I mean, we have the resources where we were able to do that. Um, so we were able to, put together an environment that, you know, in quotations, felt normal, even though the circumstances were anything but normal. Well, you should let the SID know that you guys were 10 and two and not 10 and three, like on the official Roanoke Maroons website. But yeah, you're, you're, you're totally right. Where, where people, people who have played this season, they talked about how stressful it was, but just the, the sense of just happiness that like we're practicing, even if, you know, you only have five games in the season or you don't actually know when your next game is just yeah. like in the pandemic, we've all spent so much time alone. It's just like, wait, I can see another person face to face, you know, yeah. uh, it's, it can be a refreshing mental health thing. Cause in college you spent it's in college, it's almost too much social interaction that people feel can, can get burned out. But then on right. the flip side during the pandemic, it's no social interaction. Right. 
I know. It's again, I love my team so much. They're the best human beings in the entire world. And it was just refreshing to come in and to have a group and to be a part of laughter and to be a part of something bigger than yourselves. You know, mm-hmm. during the pandemic, you just sit in your own presence. And um, I think, you know, we all realize, yeah, we're, we're just, we're meant to be around other human beings. We are meant to be social and to interact. And I think, you know, I'm just so grateful that our sport was able to allow us to do that. Coach, really appreciate all the time. Before we let you go, we have five rapid-fire questions to end the podcast. Okay. Number one, this is for all the listeners. The ODAC has Randolph, and they also have Randolph-Macon. How confusing was that for you at the beginning, or is it still confusing? So it wasn't confusing to me because, like I said, I grew, you know, in college, it was like, who's this Randolph-Macon? Right. I knew Randolph-Macon was the powerhouse. Um, actually, funny you say that. My associate head coach coached at Randolph. Um, Randolph mm. was an all-women's school. So it's not confusing for me, but people in this region get it confused all the time. <laughs> what is your, your favorite drill as as a coach? I love doing this 2v2 fast break drill. I actually got it. We hosted the national championship um, two years ago, and uh, Adrian Scheibel's at Bowdoin. I got to sit in on one of her practices, mm-hmm. and it was simulating just a transition fast break. And I've always played around with different drills, but uh, she was like, this has been the best one that I've used, and it's hands down one of the best drills um, and one of our go-tos. It's fun. It's competitive. It's fast-paced. Yeah. So it's a 2v2 transition fast break drill. Do you have any coaching idols where at the end of, you know, your your home, you see that they're playing on, on TV, you make sure to watch them or watch their synergy? Um, so I grew up the Pat Summit, Gino, Ariama mm-hmm. coaching rivalry. I mean, that is who I watched and, and what I watched. Um, but honestly, you know, from a coaching style, I actually go back to my AAU coach. He was gosh, hands down, one of the best coaches that I worked with. And so I do a lot of reflection um, and, and looking back at, at the stuff that he did. Um, I call my coach, you know, I literally just called him and said, we used to have this tap play and I can't remember it. You know, what, what was that? So um, I just go and utilize the inspiration from the people in my life that I can actually physically pick up the phone and talk to. Gotcha. And then I think the WBCA is an amazing resource for college coaches. So I definitely go in and, and look at their programs they have online because I'm a member. So anytime you need an X and O or you need a, a chalk talk session, I can definitely I do re- uh, reference those as well. One of my very good buddies from from high school, he went to Bates, and we always joke around and, and talk about how Bates and the main main in general handles inclement weather. <laughs> what is the, you know the most iconic snowstorms that Bates got where you guys did not cancel class? Oh gosh, we never canceled class. I can't even remember. Um, <laughs> There was so I grew up in Maine, obviously. Mm-hmm. So like for me, the the snowstorm of '98, that was me in high school though. That shut down high school. Oh wow! And I actually remember a picture of Bates where people were sliding on the ice to go to class. So even during <laughs> that ice storm, they didn't cancel classes at Bates. Yeah. Um, I think there might have been one day where it was like negative twenty, and it was like physically dangerous to leave. Yeah. I think we got that day off, and that was it. But, I mean, playing softball, I was shoveling our field. <laughs> I mean, I was in the inclement weather and just living in it, embracing it. That's what you do. If you're in Maine, that's what you do. Yeah, he would he would describe as if, if you ever emailed a professor. Not that this ever actually happened, but, you know, the 
the, the mentality was if you ever asked about, hey, are we going to have this classical cause because of the snow? They would almost just laugh in your face. Like, just exactly. wear, wear some boots. Uh, yeah, that's what it was for sure. And I can tell you, that is one thing about living in Virginia. I didn't realize how quickly I would acclimate to the weather. <laughs> oh, but I have acclimated. They actually have fall and spring down here. They yes. have that in the state of Maine. <laughs> yes, it's, it's, it's still no S- S- San Diego. But uh, yeah. last, last question. You have gone through a lot of rule changes in women's college basketball since, since you've been a coach. But if you could change one rule about college basketball, what would you change? Gosh, what a deep question. Um, one rule. I, huh. I honestly don't know, you know, because things change so much, I just kind of go with the flow here, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they changed the, they changed the free throws to two free throws. Yeah. I really like the one and one. Mm-hmm. I think um, I think it was good for our, our game. It, it, there are so many close basketball games, and if you miss your free throws, then yeah. it gave teams an opportunity. So when you're guaranteed two, I think it changes the game. I'd actually go back to one and one. I really like the one and one. So I think that's what I would change. Interesting, interesting. I like that one. Coach, yeah. really appreciate the time. As always, on the double double, we give the last word to our guest. You really want to say or shout out to the great people of Salem, Virginia? Um, I just, you know, to the people in Salem, it keeps keep being strong. Uh, the pandemic will will pass, and um, we just appreciate all the support. We have a wonderful community. So, the people of Salem, thank you for all you've done um, for us through this time and what you continue to do. Coach, congratulations on a great crazy pandemic season and uh, best of luck going forward (laughs) thank you so much i really appreciate it and congratulations to you this is a wonderful thing you're doing thank you that'll do it for this episode of the double double if you like this podcast you can find us on itunes spotify or wherever your podcast where you can subscribe rate and review five star being much much appreciated also follow us on twitter at dbl underscore dbl podcast we'll be back later this week until then take care and make it a great day